Now, I know, good job, honey. I know that some of you thought when I made the announcement about the tires that you thought to yourself, what's he doing that for? I mean, tires and this. Let me tell you how God works. There's a young gal in our church today that needed a set of tires, was going to have to go buy the tires, probably didn't have all the money to get the tires. And you know what? She went back and talked to Nate, and they went out and checked, and they fit perfectly. See? I need a boat, a large boat. And I can see it now, painted across the back is the name Visitation. So when you call my house in an emergency, my wife says, he's on visitation. Doing the Lord's work. Anyway. Now last week, now I know that when you go to most churches, this is when you get serious. We get serious. But you're going to see that we have a lot of fun around here. And this is just another level of having a good time with the Word of God this morning. You remember last week, we're in the book of Proverbs. Have been for quite some time. And we talked last week about uh, chapter 16 is where we'll be today, about the instructions for a king, which is really the fundamental theme of the book of Proverbs. When Solomon wrote it, and I showed you this last week, historically he gives 12 great declarations of instructions to kings. And they form for us, as we saw last week, the, the, if, if Israel to have a good king, needed to follow these instructions. Inspirationally, we talked about how that Romans chapter 8, verse 17 talks about that someday you and I are going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ and we're going to be part of His kingship. So we ought to follow the same great practical applications that we talked about last week. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived and he sets the example of what a leader should be to God's people. And you know, in reference to leadership, from a historical context, our founding fathers understood this great truth. Most people don't know that today, they don't get that today, but it is certainly so true. They saw the Bible uh, and its principles uh, being really good judgment, doctrinal concepts to follow. And uh, you'll find that in our early years, in the beginning of our country, we call it, or we used to call it, Judeo-Christian meaning that our country was built on the Ten Commandments fundamentally, but also on the principles of New Testament Christianity. It's a term you don't hear much today. One of our founding fathers, by the name, a guy by the name of John Lott, he said this. He said, when we form our government, if we have good laws, we're going to have good government. Now that sounds good, and it probably is true to a certain degree. William Penn, who was another founding father, they named the state of Pennsylvania after him. I think he was the first governor of Pennsylvania. He said, no, no, no. If we're going to form a government, the key to good government is not good laws, but rather the key to good government is men, good men, that are saved men. He said, governments are like clocks that men set in motion. He says, yes, good laws do good. But good saved men will do better. He said, for good laws may lack good men, but good men will never lack good laws, nor will they support bad ones. You know, that's about as good as sound as advice that you could ever have in starting a government 
running a government and keeping the government where it needs to be. Then you remember I showed you uh, one of the uh, best things that God ever gave me, and that is in the life of David. David is starting out as a shepherd boy and then rising through a process to become a king. And I showed you how that, that's so true in your life and my life. Someday we're going to be a king. Right now, we're to take care of the flock of God and be the shepherd. Incredible concepts that we looked at. We looked at two effects. The Bible talked about the light of God's countenance. A countenance. We looked at two effects that the light of God in our lives will do. Doctrinally, I showed you that those passages are a picture of the second coming of Christ. But inspirationally, they show true, two great truths. First of all, when God lightens you in on the inside, you and me, it shows us our true condition. This is why a lot of people don't like to come to church or get around the Bible. The Bible is like a flashlight that God turns on when you begin to hear it. And it makes you look deep down inside yourself and see sometimes some things that maybe you don't want to see. Second thing that it does is it shows us our pathway through life. It, it gives us and illuminates the walk that we, we go through in life. You know, this had been some of the best practical material that you'll ever get last week based on the book of Proverbs, written by the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, understanding how that the principles apply to your life and my life. You know, our church has went through a process. This will be our 13th year uh, of being in an existence. And through that time, the church has grown. The, uh, uh, the, the people that are coming in it has grown. Some of you that came back 10, 11, 12 years ago now uh, hold a position in this church that is, uh, you know, unparalleled. You're, uh, this church has some of the best leadership that I'd put up against anybody on the planet. We have men and women here who really love and understand the Bible, who know the Bible, who can teach the Bible. We have 30, 40 men who could preach the Word of God as good as I do, uh, that you go out and cross three or four states and you teach and preach the Bible. You know, the potential here for so many of you is absolutely incredible if you, if you want to do what God wants you to do. And today, we're going to have another great practical lesson, something that I think will really, really help you. And we're going to look at the next section of Proverbs chapter 16, and we're going to uh, we're going to break this chapter down into uh, some natural concepts and some natural themes. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verses 16 through 19, it says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better is it to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Woody, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Now, today we're going to look and examine out of these verses four key words. And I think these four key words found in the context really are the, are the basics of our walk with God and our ability to grow spiritually. 
you know, I know that's my goal for you. It should be the goal of any pastor. Uh, the number one goal of a pastor anywhere ought to be that his people gets everything that they need in an environment and an atmosphere that is conducive to spiritual growth. A controlled atmosphere, so to speak, that you get everything that you need, no matter what it may be, to be able to help you get wherever you want to get. And uh, uh, understanding these four words and how to use them will be the difference between success or failure in your life. I can create the perfect scenario for you, but what I can't do is to force you to put these four words in your life. I can't do that. That's something you have to do yourself. And hopefully today, as we come through here, uh, we've been blessed by God that God usually brings us people who are people who are, who've been running around looking for something and can't find it, but when they find it, the truth of the Word of God, and they find a place where they can be everything that God wants them to be with nobody on your back, nobody giving you problems, nobody out to hurt you, it makes a difference in their life. Now, verse 16 says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? The wisdom of God over the gold and the silver of the world. Now, the world we live in today, the Christian world and the secular world, will always put an emphasis on education. Education to the world is everything. They think it solves every problem. And uh, uh, whenever there's a problem or an issue, they think that starting another program and educating people will be the key. It never ceases to amaze me. We have discrimination in our country. Unfortunately, there's people who don't look at other people and see them the same way. Uh, And it's an unfortunate thing. But in our government, the way we deal with it, we simply think, well, we'll educate the people better. We'll give them more education, more understanding. We have a lot of violence in our society. Boy, down in Florida last night, well, we slept 50 people, stepped out into eternity. All because one guy wanted to go in in the name of Allah and kill a bunch of people. Violence is everywhere. And, and you know, and, and, and it will always do the same thing. The, uh, the people haven't come out yet, but the, but the liberals in this country, by the time we go to bed tonight, will come out and say, the problem is all the guns in America. No, the problem was that everybody in that place in Sarasota didn't have a gun. That was the problem. But we live in a world where we think that now we've got to re-educate people. We've got to educate people about violence. That in the gangs in Chicago and in New York, if you could just get them into a classroom and sit them down and educate them and get them a good job, they wouldn't be violent. We see violence in schools. Uh, you know, we try to have classes on tolerance. We have sexual discrimination, sexual harassment. So the government says, you need to have sensitivity training, more education. Develop a program. We have people who fall into alcoholism or drug abuse. So somebody come up with the idea of a, an Alcoholics Anonymous or a Narcotics Anonymous, putting a program together that teaches somebody through 12 steps and educates them about alcohol and drugs. We live in a world, we've talked about this before, that now same-sex marriage is, is being accepted across this country. And there was a time when it would have never been accepted. And now it's being accepted. You know why? Because the federal government and all these organizations, they're taking people who do not have any understanding of anything and reprogramming them to think 
that it's okay for a woman and a woman and a man and man to be joined in holy matrimony. It's through the education process and everything that you see. Now we're, tra- now we're faced with the next level, transgender, men who want to be women and women who want to be men. And they want to be able to use whatever bathroom facility. They feel like whatever gender they are that day. And the government comes back and supports that and says, you know what, we need to have more education. We need to train people to be more tolerant with people who want to embrace an alternative lifestyle. That's the new word today, by the way. Alternative lifestyle. This year, the FFA, who searches all the baggage that goes through the airplanes and all the stuff that goes around to keep the terrorist explosion at plane to a minimum, when they were tested, they failed 95% of the time. 95% if somebody wanted to smuggle something through to bring down a plane, they would have made it. 95% of the time. What does the government do? You see, if you've got a government job, you can never be fired. The government says, we need more training. I mean, you can take a monkey and train him till you want. And he still is going to be a monkey. You get a guy who, I mean, here you got. You got a jet airplane that cost, what, $70 million? You have passengers, 300 of them, who are worth what? Billions of dollars? And then you got a guy protecting them being paid minimum wage. Is that me? Is there anything wrong with that picture? In the communist countries, one of the things that they did when they took over was the first thing was re-education. About 11 o'clock at night, you got to knock on the door. Some party official was there and says, everybody be down to the city hall tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. We're going we're gonna to have a re-education ceremony, and we're going to really let you get re-educated now to what's going on. In communist country, re-education was a bullet in the head. We, we see the same thing in our churches. Every church who looks for a pastor, they care nothing about what he knows about the Bible. They care nothing about if he wins people to Christ. They care nothing about what his plan is to make the church grow. You know what they want to know? Where'd you go to school? How many degrees you got after your name? B.A., M.A., Ph.D. B.A., bunch of applesauce. M.A., more applesauce. Ph.D., piled higher and deeper. <laughs> now let me say this. I do believe that education, I do believe that education is the key to fixing every issue we ever will face. I think it's true of our country. I think it's true of you and me. Now, that may shock some of you because some of you think that I'm against education. I'm not. But here's the problem. Education without a solid moral base built on absolute truth is only a waste of time and money. Oh, Bob Jones Sr., one of the greatest evangelist Methodist preachers the world has ever seen, used to say, education without salvation is damnation. And to that I add to that great phrase, the bigger the belfry, the more room for the bats. 
Now, I'm a no, I told you this Thursday night, and, that you, and I'm a nobody, and so are most of you. In the world scenario, our opinion really doesn't matter. Yet we can see, most of us, at a glance, what's wrong today in our country, and we know how to fix it. It's the educated folks who are educated beyond their intelligence who can't figure it out. I, I say it all the time. I got 30 or 40 of you guys and probably gals here that I'd put up against anybody, anywhere, anytime when it comes to understanding the Bible. You're, you're, you're outside the norm. That's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is so popular. He's not a career politician. I don't know anything about him, and I really don't care one way or the other, but the world looks at him, and, you know, and the Republicans can't get it. They don't understand, they don't like him because he's not one of them. But they cannot understand why the whole world in America is for him and he, he just went from nothing to everything and won the, won the nomination for the president. They don't get it. And what they don't get is we're sick and tired of the status quo. We're sick and tired of being lied to. Now, he may not be any better. I don't know. But as far as we're concerned or the world's concerned or America's concerned, he's better than what they've got out there at this point. At least he looks like he's going to do something and do it right. Maybe he won't. I don't know. I don't care. Whoever you get isn't going to make any difference where this country's gone. But I'm making a point. The demise of our society is simply based on a complete breakdown of the core fundamental concept that God built this country around, and it's called the family unit. No moral education of the kids in the fundamental area of the home. It starts with the mom and the dad. It starts with the family. It doesn't start with the federal government. It doesn't even start in the church. It starts at home that moms and dads begin to build moral concepts into their kids. In the 1780s, a guy by the name of Robert Rakes, he lived in England and he saw the plight of, of so many English kids that their moms and dads were working all day and there was no, no discipline to go to school. And he just ran the streets of London. Robert Rakes started what is commonly known today as the concept of a Sunday school. Completely lost today in churches. They don't have a clue of the fundamental core reason that Sunday school started. He brought these kids in off the street to teach them values based on the Bible to get them out of the ghettos and the gutters of London. A Sunday school to teach these kids a moral base of truth. When I was in the public school system in my day, this would be back in the 50s and the 60s, it started to change in the, in the 70s. But back then, God and the Bible was still the solid standard, believe it or not. In school, back in my, I was in junior high and in grade school, when we had an Easter service, they had a preacher come in and he preached on the resurrection of Christ. At Christmas time, they had another preacher come in and he preached on the Christ being born and how the salvation had come to the world. I was there, I know. In fact, 
one of the Easter's, I still remember it, they asked me to introduce the preacher. And I must have been about nine or ten years old. And they always, you know how they have the student come up and do it. My mom thought that was the most proudest thing I ever did in my life. I went up there, and, and I still remember it. His name was Reverend Barker. And I went up there, and I said, we're so happy today to have with us Reverend Barker, who is going to bring us the invocation and tell us about uh, Easter. And then I turned to him and said, Reverend Barker. I was the cutest little thing you ever saw in your life. <laughs> do it. Absolutely. In 1963, they around there, a woman by the name of Madeline Murdoch O'Hare and her crowd began to go to the government and complain, and first thing that went out was prayer, and a little later on, the Bible went out of our public schools. And it's so simple. I, get you, I guarantee you, almost every one of you this morning, without exception, could fix that problem in a heartbeat. You know what happened? When the Bible went out, when prayer went out, the drugs, the violence, and the sex came in. How hard is that? How hard is that? And today, you can, you can put all of the D.A.R.E. programs, all the sex education classes, all the gender awareness classes you want, but without a moral righteous standard that sets a course on a spiritual heading, it's all a waste of time and money. That Bible says that it's better to get God's wisdom than all the gold and silver in this world. Now let's look at our first verse here, verse 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding than silver? Now here's two words that are totally missing today, and these are not part of our four, but here's two words that are totally missing today. We're getting to the point here where we're going to break these down. But the words wisdom and understanding, these two fundamental ingredients are the base for what we would call, call common sense. And you know as well as I do, common sense is not very common today. And it all began, it all began with the rejection of the Bible. You'll remember, I've told you in other times, coming down through our studies, that uh, from a historical perspective, no country that ever dumped the Word of God, no country that had the Bible, this would be Germany at the Reformation with Luther, it'll be England, with the uh, bringing out of the King James Bible. It'll be Czechoslovakia, who under John Huss at one point in time, 95% of the population was born again. Doesn't even exist today. Every nation that once had the Word of God, that rejected the Word of God, never survived 200 years past that rejection. It's a historical fact from the Bible and the Word of God. For America, that was 1888 in Sarasota, Florida. We are 128 years into it. And what a mess we have today. We went from a nation that at the end of 1945 had never lost a war, that from 1945 to today has never won one. And people look around and say, well, what's the problem? What's the issue? I just don't get it. I don't understand what the, all the problems are today. What a mess. I can't wait for the next 73 years. Now, with this as an introduction, let's look at our four key words. Verse 16 says, Understanding is rather to be chosen than silver. Our first word is the word chosen. I have a message that I preach. I 
I've preached it several times about the, you know, I'm I'm quick going to be 66 years old. And uh, I look back on my 66 years and I can pretty much boil 66 years down into seven of the greatest things that God ever, I learned in life. And my life, and I'm sure it's probably true of your life if you're an older folk and you look back at it and you have some understanding of the Bible. I mean, I, I, I learned six or seven, maybe eight of the greatest things out of my life that life is built on. And I would say without a doubt, the first number one thing that I've learned in my 66 years and my travel through planet Earth is life is about the choices we make. Now, I would never pressure you, uh, uh, pressure uh, to, uh, never pressure or presume to speak to you or for you, but I will speak to you on this matter. Wherever you're at in life today, good, bad, or indifferent, wherever your marriage is at in your life today, wherever your kids are at in life today, and wherever you want to get to in your life today. Your life, good or bad, is where it's at simply because of the choices that we have made. We like to blame our problems on other people. It's very much a convenience because that takes away from us personal responsibility. And I'll be the first to tell you, this is not a message that's going to beat you up because you made some bad choices in life. We have all made bad choices in life. I have made bad choices in life. I never care about a mistake people make. I don't care what it is, because we all make mistakes. What I care about is, did you learn from your mistake? And I'm going to clarify that here in in, in just a little bit. We have a ministry here that that works with people. We call it the people ministry. It's basically a counseling ministry. And I have probably 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 of the sharpest people uh, that you'll ever meet who understand the issue. We've been working now for three or four years putting it all together. And, 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 and basically, just to break it down, when somebody comes in with problems in their lives, no matter what it may be, it may be marital problems, it may be personal problems, it doesn't matter. When somebody comes in and they have issues, real biblical-based trying to help you and get you out of what you're in has to start with one thing, one thing. And that one thing is you have to stop making bad choices. You can never fix the problem in your life today with the same thinking that caused those problems. You have to start making good choices. When somebody comes in and they talk to me and we go through this and through that, I'll say, hey, you know what? Here's what I'll do for you. I will work with you one-on-one. If you're a lady, I'll put a, I'll put a group of support ladies around you. If you're a guy, I'll put a group around you, and we'll work through this thing, and we'll get the principles down. And we may not be able to go out of here and fix all of your problems today. But I'm going to tell you, we're going to do something that fundamentally is absolutely amazing if you will do it. That will be the beginning of you solving all of your problems. And it is simply from this day forward, let's quit making bad choices. Let's quit making choices on your emotions. Let's quit making choices out of your anger. Let's quit making choices out of your desires or your flesh. Let's start making choices based 
on the principles of the Word of God. Now, if you'll start doing that, we can then begin to fix every other problem you got. You know why we can't ever get there? Because you just keep adding to the pile. And we never get anywhere. Do you see how simple that is? And you didn't have to pay $100 an hour for it. What am I the idiot? It's the key to whatever you and I are today. And I'm telling you, I've seen so many people that they never get their problems fixed because they just jump out of the frying pan into the fire. You get out of a bad marriage, jump right into a new one. Get out of a bad relationship, don't even stop and ask themselves the question, what happened here? What did I do? What's wrong with me that I need to fix so the next one doesn't go the wrong way? You know why? Because it's always, that's her fault. That's his fault. Well, let me tell you about my ex. Let me tell you something. There's always two issues in every marriage. And you may not be able to fix him or her, but you can begin to fix you. And tell you the truth, that's the hardest part. It's easy to yell at your spouse. It's easy to blame them for everything. Look in the mirror and say, you know what, Bob, you're the problem. Because in my mirror, it just simply says, oh, no, you're not. You remember that Reverend Barker. You're the sweet little guy. In weeks to come, about three weeks and counting, we're going to begin a study on biblical parenting. We're going to get every parent that has a kid that's going to camp understanding what I'm going to do, what I need them to do. And for all of you who have little kids, your kids are not going to camp, it'll be an absolute benefit for you. But I want to tell you today, the number one job of a mom and a dad, the number one job of parenting, it's real simple. It's begin to instill biblical value system in your children's life. Begin a process of insulating them against the things of this world. Parents get the reverse. They think, I'll just isolate them. You'll never isolate them. That's a myth. That'll never happen. You can't be with them 24-7 the rest of their life. You can't continue to make choices for them the rest of their life. The reason why they get to be 16, 17, 18, and 19, 20, and they start making terrible choices is because you never taught them not to make terrible choices. Oh, I'm not saying you didn't yell at them. I'm not saying you didn't whip them. I'm not saying you didn't sit them down and correct them. I'm saying you didn't take the biblical approach that the Bible talks about providing a vision for your child. We'll talk about it. I'm often asked. I get, I get people all the time, you know, over the years that, that uh, have kids that are 15, 16, 17, and they're incorrigible, and they can't do anything with them. And they try to, they, they try to look at the church as the fix-all. They try to think at me or Zach or some of you guys out there to, and some of you gals that just put them with them, and they'll be just fine. Well, that, that's fine. You guys are great for them. But I want to tell you something. The reason why many times you can't make a difference in a child's life even at 15, 16, and 17, in the world we live in, you know why? you got nothing to work with. The, ki- the parents have done absolutely nothing at building a foundation of a moral compass in their life. Now, we're supposed to come in and fix all of that? 
I say it all the time. The problem with incorrigible kids is not incorrigible kids. It's incorrigible parents. They get the wrong value system in life. And America as a nation, she is what she is today based on the choices that this country has made. I've always been an investigator of history. I've always thought that things in history are never portrayed right through Fox News, CNN, or whoever. I think they always give you the world perspective on it. I think in major areas, there's some real to get to the bottom of it. You've got to have a concept of God and the Bible and history, the Bible and the country, and lay the whole thing out. And man, I'll tell you what, investigating history is an incredible thing. You've got to take your Bible, get a good understanding of history, and go back and scrutinize the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. There's a video back there in our bookstore that I did, what, 30 years ago on the assassination of President Kennedy. Some of you were there when I did it. Did you ever notice how in every election cycle in the last 40 or 50 years, no matter who got in office, whether they're Democrat or Republican, things continually got worse? The economy's not getting any better. The problems aren't getting any better. The gangs in Chicago or East St. Louis aren't going away. Last night was proof that you can't even go to a nightclub. Though I will say, if they'd have been in the Bible study last night, they probably would all be alive today. But that's just me. Instead of being in a bar. But that's just me. Most of them would probably be Baptist preachers because if they got congregations, they'll drive a preacher to drink. (laughs) And this cycle will be no different. The problem in America, the problem in America is not the Democrats. It's not the Clintons. It's not Obama. It's not, it's not the Republicans. It's not Nancy Pelosi. It's not Donald Trump. The problem in America is America now is 60 years stint on making bad choices. And I don't care who you put in office. Until you put God on the throne of this country again, it isn't going anywhere. Now, (laughs) if I could get that, and I'm a nobody. I got no college education. I was in the sixth grade so long, the kids brought me to Apple. They thought I was the teacher. (laughs) You see, to make the right choices in life, whether it's you individually or us as a country, we must make our decisions based on wisdom and understanding. Common sense from a common Bible that was given to a common man. And whether you do it or not, it's totally a choice. Our first word. It's totally a choice, a choosing you make. And you can never blame it on somebody else. You know, I've told you many times, there'll be times in your life, there's times in my life, when something will happen in your life that you're not responsible for. Something bad will happen, something unfortunate, something tragic, something unfair, something that you didn't deserve will happen in your life and you have absolutely no responsibility of it happening. It was not of your choosing. 
But there'll never be a time in your life in one of those situations where you may not be responsible for what happened, but you are responsible how you deal with it. And that comes back to choices. And that's based on your core value system. The reason why I put such an emphasis on biblical principles here around here is because they are the principles of life. They form your core value system. They give us the ability to make right choices in the face of issues that we are confronted with. Now, our second key word. Next verse. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. Now, our second word here is the word highway. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but all through the Bible, you'll find our choices in life are likened to you and I traveling on a highway, our journey through life. When the Lord comes back, one of the great studies to study is he comes up the king's highway. What Jesus tells his disciples over there in the Gospels to go out and gather people from life, he says, go out into the highways, the hedges, the byways. He compels them to come in from the highway. Look at Matthew 22, 9 sometime, or Luke chapter 14. Why, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter ye not in the, at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go thereat. You're going to get destroyed. Life is a four-way lane highway or the old paths. So every town in America where sin, vice, and all the ungodliness of the world will have a street right down the middle called Broadway. You want to go to New York City and get sin on an educated cultural level? Go and catch a show at the Broadway. In life... I heard Hillary a couple of weeks ago talking about Donald Trump and how his nasty accusations and how she was so, she was going to be clean. And, and she says, you know what? He may take the low road in life, but I'm going to take the high road. Life's a road. How many times somebody told you life is paved? The road of life is paved with good intentions. It's a road. <laughs> When we win somebody to Christ, we open up the Bible. We win them to Christ by the what? Romans road of salvation. That's Romans 3, Romans 6, and Romans 10, if you don't know that. And in life, as you travel this highway of life, you're, you're going to be faced with many detours, many side roads and exits, you know, for the little side trips of life. Just stop over and see the sights choices we make. And I want to tell you something. Getting off the main highway of life and getting onto the side roads of life, never a good idea. <laughs> I like classic horror movies. I like them because they're so stupid. I, I, I like them because they were, they were done in a time, and, and they're so fundamentally ridiculous how anybody could be, be afraid of them. 
Uh, but uh, but I, I enjoy them. I, I enjoy watching them because they're all so predictable. Every horror movie I ever saw where people got killed. I mean, I, I got it in my mind. I, I, just, it, it, I remember when Psycho came out. Remember Psycho? The Bates Motel? Norman Bates? It was a classic that most of you, I can obviously tell, has missed in life. Well, anyway, this woman steals a lot of money, and she's running, and she's trying to get away, and she's going down the highway, and she's afraid that they're going to catch her, so, yeah, she gets off the highway onto a side road, gets tired, drives up, and there it is, the Bates Motel. Remember the scene when she's taking a shower, that screaming music when Norman Bates, who loses his mind. By the way, he's talking to his mother up in the room, and she's been dead for about 60 years. And he's a taxidermist, so he's a taxidermied mommy. And at the end of the movie, i got to tell you, it's terrifying, where she's walking up the steps and, and, and trying to find his mom. And the door opens, and all you do is see uh, this shadow in a rocking chair going back and forth. And then it shows up. She's a petrified, dried-up prune who's been dead for 40 years. And he, 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 he from out of hider, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but she's in the shower, and she's taking a shower. And that, you know that music? And he's stabbing her, you know? He's just stabbing her. And she's got a wig on. He's dressed up like his mother. And he's hacking her to pieces. He puts her in a car and drops her in a swamp. Somebody comes looking for her. He kills him. Puts his car in the swamp. That's a valuable swamp. <laughs> All started with her getting off the main road and getting on a side road. <laughs> oh, here's a test for your movie skills. 3,000 maniacs. Who's ever saw it? Well, and I love it, because it's always a bunch of goofy teenager kids. Half guys, half gals, who get brainless. And they're always going to a beach party someplace down in Florida. And in this particular movie, I'll hear again, I know a shortcut. Get off the main road, start going, and then they run into this town that during the Civil War was a Confederate town that got wiped out by the, by the North. So every hundred years, this town comes back to life and have a celebration. And anybody comes into that town becomes the main course. Dinner. It's an incredible movie. So here they are. Here's the girls. Oh, we're going to a big party. Here again, they all got killed. Half of them got eaten. Nobody got out. They took a side road. The hills have eyes. <laughs> one and two. Remember that one? These goofy looking, this family that lived out in the desert where they blew off the H-bombs in the test and they became mutants. And here again, oh, 
we're going down to my family thruster, we're going to Wally World, you know, just having a... Now, that would have made family vacation even more exciting if they would have went... But anyway. Here again, Dad. You can't tell him anything. He knows everything. I know a shortcut. Gets off the highway, goes down through here. You can guess what happened. One by one, they all got killed. You'd have think they would have learned, but no. The hills have eyes too, did the same thing. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. I know a shortcut. You always got three or four girls who are the goofiest bimbos on the planet. Then you have two guys who are just nothing, and then you have one or two guys that are always rivaling for the leadership. It's all the same. And they all go the same way. They take a, I know a shortcut. I know a way to get there. So they get off the main road, they start going down there, and then it happens. They either run out of gas, they break down, they're out nowhere, four, five, six goofy little teenagers, no cell phone service, alone. Well, there's a farmhouse. Maybe they got a phone. over. Nice short trip. All the horror shows I've ever seen on TV, the folks get in real trouble and get killed by getting off the main highway, trying to take a shortcut and get on a side road, and they wind up dead. I want to tell you something this morning. Some of you here today, bless your hearts, and I love you, and I do anything in the world to help you. I, not, I never get mad at anybody. I don't hold any grudges. Uh, I, 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 just, I, I just, I just want to help you. But I want to tell you something. Some of you are in bad shape spiritually this morning. You're the starring role in your own horror movie. And your life is a mess, and we want to try to help you. I want to try to help you. I'm not just going to pass you off to somebody else because I'm the revere end who never deals with anybody. But we can't. You know why we can't? Because you keep thinking you know a shortcut to success of life and you won't listen to anybody and you're wasting your time like somebody down today, this morning, in Cocker City, Kansas. Anybody know what's in Cocker City, Kansas? It's off the main highway. Anybody know what's in Cocker City, Kansas? Somebody say it. It's the world's largest ball of twine. We're going to take a trip there someday. A waste of time. I wonder how many divorces got, came into being because going down Highway 70 through Kansas, he said, I want to go to Hawker City, Kansas, and I hear they got the, this is spectacular, darling. What is it, honey? The world's biggest ball of twine. You took a side trip, and you never got back on the main highway. 
Now, life on this highway, you're going to find a number of crossroads in which you'll need to know which way you need to go. You have to choose. And to choose right, you need a value system. In life on this highway, you're going to meet people. You know, not everybody you need to meet needs to be your friend. There are some people who want to be your friend, you need to steer clear of. There's some time in your life you're going to have to make a decision about marriage. Most people get married today like you pitch up a hitchhiker. You're driving down the road, and you know you shouldn't pick up hitchhikers. But here's this guy, it's raining, and here's this guy with this shiver and look on his face like, please help me. And for just a moment of time, you say, here it comes. Oh, he looks okay. So you pull over. He comes up and he gets in the car, throws his bag in the back, and he says, thank you. And he, he starts saying, uh, man, I just tell you, it was so cold out there and I was so wet. And I'm sorry to get your car. And you're thinking, oh, I did a really good thing. This is a good guy. And he's saying, you know, I just want you to know I really appreciate it because I haven't killed anybody all day today and you're the next one. It's over. And you meet somebody and you say, he looks like a really good guy. She looks like a really good girl. And you pick, take them in life just like you get a hitchhiker in your car. You know nothing about them. You've never seen them operate under pressure. You know nothing about their biblical integrity. You know absolutely nothing what they know in the Bible. You've never worked with them at any length of time in ministry. You never saw them in a leadership role in anything. They're just a hitchhiker along the road. And then you wonder why it doesn't work out? You need to watch more movies. You need to have a value system. You know what? God will give you a job. You know also the devil will give you a job. You better decide which one's where when you've got to make that crossroads. How about God? Do you understand God as well as he understands you? You should. How about the word of God? What was your choosing process? What in life do you know more about today than the Bible? How about family? You know, sometimes you have good family, sometimes you have bad family, sometimes it becomes the most unfortunate thing on the planet, but sometimes that's a crossroads. You just got to have a real value system to make the right choice. All the issues of life. All our lives will be faced with the issues we have as we travel through them. It's just that simple. There's road signs in life. In the Bible. There are. You go through life and you go down uh, the Bible as you drive your car on a highway. They put road signs along the side to tell you what's up ahead. That's what the Bible does. The Bible will tell you when up ahead the road's uneven. So you better slow down a little bit. There'll be some times in life the Bible will tell you that your life will be a little uneven. It'll say, no passing. Yellow line. How many times have you seen somebody say, oh, I can make it. And it comes a truck right over the hill. Yeah, you made it. 
You made it. You did real good. Made the six o'clock news. I see signs and says, I always love this one, fresh oil. Now that's a good one because oil is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. And you and I should have fresh oil every day of our lives. But you know what? When you're driving our car, driving our cars, the worst thing we hate to see is that sign that says fresh oil. You know why? Because it sticks all over your car. You don't mind the speed limit because you just go faster. You don't mind the curves because you're smart enough to get around them. You don't mind the uneven road, but what that fresh oil? You just want to avoid that fresh oil all the time, don't we? Yeah, fresh oil, that Holy Spirit of God, He'll get all over you. He'll stick to everything you do. There's some road signs. Curves up ahead. Better watch some of those relationship guys. <laughs> or girls. Stop sign. Stop. You know what most people think stop means? Slow down. I had a buddy who was a state trooper one time. I haven't talked to him for years, but he was a great guy. We had fun together. He was always telling me the latest highway patrol jokes. He was a Massachusetts state cop. And he always tell me the latest joke. He says, I got to tell, tell you, Bobby. He says, look, he says, I pulled over. He'd always put himself in it. I pulled over a guy the other day. From, from, he came up to a stop sign, just slowed down, and then just went right on through it. And I lit him up, and I pulled him over. And I went up to there, and I said, sir, I said, uh, he says, what did you pull me over? I wasn't speeding. I said, no, sir, you, uh, you ran right through that stop light, and he said, uh, that stop sign. And he said, well, I, I, I slowed down, and he says, I slowed down, and he says, sir, he says, slow down and stop are two different things. Yeah, but you don't understand. You're going to give me a ticket. I know it says stop, but I slowed down. He said, I didn't know what else to do. I grabbed him out of the car, got my PR-24 stick, and started beating him along the side of the head as hard as I could. He kept yelling, stop, 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 stop. He said, you mean slow down, don't you? <laughs> hey, when he says stop, stop. Every 10 years in Missouri, you got to get your driver's license redone. I just got mine last year. And, uh, you know, and I had forgotten. And you go in there, and there's always a bunch of people. And I kept seeing people going up, going down. And, and there's two things I just hate to do. And, and it just, I would rather go get a, my tooth pulled without any Novocaine. And one of them is going to the license place. I mean, nobody cares. I saw people in there, I think, were there for weeks. I ain't kidding. So I'm sitting down there and, you know, and, and I'm watching all these people and I'm coming back and they're really bothered. And I'm thinking, what is going on? What happened in the last 10 years? And I said, uh, this one lady, she had this book that she got off the thing and she's sitting back there. She says, oh, I flunked the test. And I says, was your eyes bad? She says, no, you have to do an eye test, but then they, they give you a test on the road signs. They'll just put the shape of the signs up and then you got to tell them what they mean. Well, I panicked. I, 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 I hadn't even been up there yet. So I go up and get one, and I'm doing a crash store. You talk about, you talk about, you know, I felt like I would, God just told me, I was a new Christian, and God just told me I was going to win somebody to Christ in 20 minutes, and I had to learn the Romans road in that short time. I'm looking at that sucker, man. I'm, I'm think, thinking on how to cheat. You know, can I run him on the back of my hand? You know, what, what, you know, uh, you know can, I, can, I, I miss, can I put him into a song? Stop, don't go, move. I mean, I'm, I'm doing everything I could do. 
So I go up there, and I look through the thing, passed the eye exam, came back, and, 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 and I blitzed it. I passed it. But I thought about that. I thought about that this week as I was putting this together. You know, I drive all the time. You drive all the time. I see those road signs on the side of the road all the time, and I just never pay any attention to them. And you know what? You come Sunday morning, you get in your Bible, and you do everything spiritual on Thursday night, and I talk about them all the time. You don't pay attention to them. Till the test comes. All right, our third word. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, our third word will be pride. Now, our third key word here will be the reason why a man or a woman will never choose wisdom and understanding. A man or a woman will always get off the highway onto the side roads. Pride is the number one issue in life. That's because it's the number one issue in the Bible. It was the first original sin. Everybody thinks it was Adam and Eve in the garden. No, it was the devil in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I will be like the most high God. My pride, if it counters, he would lift it up. You know, a, a prideful person, and you, we've all been around them, and they all have different tendencies. Some of them pick apart every person that they ever meet. They'll pick apart every person they ever meet, but they'll never turn that high pressure on themselves. I've seen them come to church and pick apart every sermon a preacher preaches. And you apply nothing to their own life. It says a haughty spirit. That means a proud, disdainful spirit. Somebody that has a very high opinion of themselves. Lofty, arrogant, with a contempt for others. And I'll say something about the reason why I talk about the number one thing about a prideful person is they're always unteachable. You can't teach them anything. Their greatest weakness is their inability to see their arrogance and refusing instruction for somebody who understands something better than they do. It's incredible. Hey, I've seen husbands that you couldn't teach a thing about how they treat their wives. They have no clue and want to learn about, in the Bible, the role of the husband. I've seen wives who would reject any notion that they needed to change some things uh, about their life in their marriage, the role of the woman. I've seen Christians. You couldn't teach them a thing about the Bible. They think they got it all down. I've seen parents absolutely blinded when it comes to their own children. Little kids being disrespectful, disobedient. We used to have a little kid here. Oh, he's grown up now. It's been years ago. He was the meanest little kid, meaner than a striped snake. He was the meanest little kid that you ever saw. And you go up and say hi to him. I went up one time, one time. I went up and said hi to him. And he looked at me and he went, and he kicked me right in the leg. Me, the preacher. Me, Bob Alexander. He didn't care that I'm on YouTube. His mom come over and said, isn't he cute? And I said, yeah, I wish he was mine for about a week. Dragging him around a parking lot of Walmart on a chain. 55 miles an hour. We'll see how kicked like the kick then. Just kidding. I'm, I'm adding flavor to the message. We had this kid at, this last week that raped this girl. He's got six months for it. You know why I got six months for it? 
because he wrote a letter to the judge and said, I did what I did because of the parties I went to. If I had a judge, I'd have wrote him back and said, I just gave you 100 years. I did what I did because I'm the judge and you did wrong and that's my courtroom and you're going to jail. Six months. Remember the kid that killed those people or however he did it and he got off completely because his lawyer said he had influenza. The influence and the affluence of his mom's money and dad's money made him do it. Where are these people when we need them? Listen, when pride is the determining factor in our lives, it will always lead to destruction and our downfall. I'm going to tell you something, guys. You can play it all you want. One morning you'll wake up and she'll say, I don't love you anymore. And it's over. It's over. One day those kids will move out right into the undisciplined world based on the undisciplined lifestyle they had in their family. Arrogant pastors will lose their church. Arrogant parents will lose their kids. And arrogant husband and wives will lose their marriage. And as the Bible says, this is only the beginning of sorrows. Now let's look at our last key word here. Verse 19. Really goes along with the other one. Better is it to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now our last key word here is the word humble. Having a humble spirit. Now, this will be a teachable spirit in relationship to the last one, which was unteachable. I got to tell you, one of the great blessings of the ministry in this church, anyhow, and one of the greatest aspects of the ministry and dealing with people is to actually watch this take place in a person's life. From my advantage point, being able to see it all and understand it all and be involved in it, I actually see this process play itself out. It's an incredible thing. The fact that God gives a man or a woman a new spirit takes away the old life and all the old problems they had and gives them a new one with him because they have a teachable spirit. It's an incredible thing to see. I've seen it so many times. Somebody will come to softball or volleyball. As far as I am concerned, two of the greatest ministries of this church is outreach to people. And they'll come out and they'll play softball, you know, or they'll play volleyball. And, and uh, you know, then after a while, they'll come to church and, and uh, they'll, uh, uh, and at, uh, you know, they're, maybe first they're really not into it. And they have sat through the devotions, you know, in the, in the, in the softball or the volleyball. And, and uh, then, uh, you know, they, they, they come to Jason's Deli. And then the first thing you know, they're showing up on Sunday morning. And then, bang, you see them on Thursday night. And then you see them back there coming out with a Bible. Or one of you people buy them a Bible, you know, like you all do. And, and then uh, they start hanging out with everybody at the events and all those things, you know. And then the next thing you know, they, they want to get discipled and off they go. I was putting this sermon together this week, and I know I could say this over and over and over again with so many people in here, but this family came to my heart, and uh, I, I, it's a classic example, and that is the, the Oring family over here. Uh, two of the best family in the world. I, I mean, a little Logan up here blowing his trumpet, and last night when that guy hit that fall ball, I never saw a guy run so fast as that little Jaybird guy going after that ball. <laughs> but I talk about them because, you know what? What was it? Three or four or five years you came to volleyball and softball and never one time came to church. 
But somebody cared about you enough to keep inviting you. You kept coming out. And you guys are invaluable to me today, and I love you very much. But it, you're a classic example of what I'm telling here and how that we reached out to you. We provided something for you. You came never knowing that God was behind the whole scenes. And look where you're at today. See? It's incredible. To watch that trend, and I've seen it in so many of you. You know, everybody thinks, well, it's just softball, you know, or it's volleyball. Maybe to you it is. To God it's something else. I don't know how many couples and families have come into this church through something like that. That they came because we never would have got them into church, but because it's a ministry and somebody reaches out to them and gives them something that they want and then God uses it to take them and, and to bring that tender, humble spirit to Him. Incredible. Incredible. And sometimes, unfortunately, I've seen him come and not get moved by anything. I've seen him come and <clears throat> get the same things that this people got or many of you got that responded to it. They get the exact same thing. They have the exact same opportunity. Holy Spirit of God does it the exact same way. And one will say, man, this is what I want. And the other one will say, no thanks. One will be teachable. The other one won't be teachable. Pride will always be the sin behind an unteachable spirit. Real quick, I want to give you eight warning signs of an unteachable, prideful person. Now, I'm not saying they have all of these, but you'll begin to see two or three of these. you begin to pay attention. The first thing I always look at for a person who's got a lot of pride in their life and has a, I mean, it just happens, it's one of, those, one of the side elements of it that has an unteachable spirit. Did you ever notice how they can't ever get the basic things down in the Bible? They always struggle with the basic things. And they always go through life majoring on the minors. And they can't get the simple, most practical things out of the Word of God. Many times, most of the time, but not all of the time, they all have a holier-an-hour approach to life. But they all have some problem in their own life they're not willing to deal with. They become very judgmental over stupid stuff. I had a guy come in one time and he says to me, talking about the athletic ministry, he says, you know, I say, you get up there and make these announcements. I don't really see the athletic ministry uh, as, a, as a ministry. And I said, well, okay. I said, let me ask you a question. Give me the definitive verse on ministry in the Bible. You know, he didn't know. No, I'm cool with everything, but I want to tell you something. You come to me to lecture me about what something is or what it isn't, and you don't have the definitive verse on the Bible, you're in trouble. How dare you come up and tell me what I'm doing right or wrong when you don't even know where the fundamental doctrinal concept that defines it is that in the Word of God. You know, ministry is not, Bob laid this out when he did the book of Galatians. You know, ministry is not what you do. Ministry is your attitude of heart. You can minister sitting home doing nothing if your heart's in the right place. When I started the athletic ministry, it was in my heart to reach people. You know what that does? Bonafide, qualified ministry. 
I don't care about who wins. And I say that because we're probably not going to win much this year. <laughs> but I'm with my buddy Will. <laughs> Ministry isn't about what you do. Ministry is what's in your heart. Your work ought to be, a, your, work ought to be your major ministry. If you go to work every day realizing and asking God to use you. Where'd you get this idea that ministry has to be something that you do with a Bible, do with this or do with that? Where, where, you, been, where you been hanging out? You need to get out and win somebody to Christ, man. Very judgmental. They think they know more about it when it comes to life in the Bible than anybody else. I've seen them save four or five years and they think that they got all the answers over somebody who's been around 30, 40 years, you know. Can't teach them anything. And I'll tell you this one, this is one. They always have trouble in relationships with people. Always do. They have a tough time identifying with people. They have a lot of truth, but they have no grace. Many times they have trouble in relationships because they can't find somebody that loves them as much as they do. They'll hold people to a higher standard, yet not hold themselves to that standard. And they'll always have standards that, for others that are unrealistic. Based on their preferences, not Bible. And they're totally unteachable past a certain point. Many times, most times, when they have an issue, uh, it's never them. It's always somebody else. I mean, 500 people in the church all believe and hold one truth. They don't like it, so you're all wrong and they're right. And the Bible says in verse 19, better is it to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. You see, the proud are always dividing the spoil because they always got to be right. They always got to conquer. They always got to have the victory. So they all get together and divide up the spoil. The point here is this is why Jesus never hung out with that crowd. He never hung out with the rich and the famous. He always was the poor and the lowly. Now on the subject of staying humble, these two go together. Here's the other side of it. Here's eight aspects of staying humble in the Word of God in your life. Number one, always respect and submit yourself to, the, to God and to those who God has put over you uh, to, to hold you accountable and help you. A good leader will be a good follower. Don't go out and try to do something till you have proved your leadership through your followership. Be honest in your limitations. Know your strengths and know your weaknesses. Take personal responsibility for your action. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't pretend you know the Bible when you really don't. You know what? It's okay not to have all the answers. A lot of pastors won't do a Bible study on Thursday night because they're just afraid to death that somebody will ask them a question that they don't know. And therefore, they'll lose face with other people. Well, I'll tell you right up front, there'll be questions people ask me that I don't know. 
I have a distinct advantage over most pastors. I can make something up, most of you won't catch it. That's not true. You know, it's okay not to know everything. There are a lot of people in the world who know more of the Bible than I do. And there'll be times that they'll ask me a question, I'll just look at you and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a clue. It's okay. You've got to know your limitations. It's okay to ask questions. That's what we're here for. But you ever notice how some people ask them so they can start an argument with you over it? You ask to learn. If you really want to learn, shut up and listen. If you want to argue, join a debate club. Don't allow yourself to get judgmental toward others, especially when you have your own issues that you're dealing with. Build a life of biblical principles and make your spirit follow those instead of your own pride. Work at seeing others like God sees them, not in the judgmental, prideful way that is we all have a tendency to do sometimes. Be kind to everybody, not just those in your social class. And number eight, most of all, <laughs> weigh what you say. Think before you speak. Some people look really look like an idiot when they think they know the Bible when they really don't. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool uttereth all his mind. Ecclesiastes 5, 3 says, A fool's voice is known but a multitude of words. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 24, 7 says, Wisdom is too high for a fool. Reading books on a subject doesn't make you an expert on the subject. You get the Bible principles down on any subject, and you be sure you've searched the Scriptures and got them all. The key to the Bible is one simple basic thing, definitive verses. On any subject you're going to have, know, or talk about, first thing you better do is find out where the definitive passage is in the Bible. I'm going to explain that to you one of these times here on a Thursday night when we get around to it. Or you'll just wind up showing the world how little you really know about the Bible. I call them dirty, hairy Christians. They're all legends in their own mind. Hey, you can pretend you know the Bible right up to the point that you tangle with somebody who really does. And then the game's over. The pride and arrogancy of a man or a nation, the haughty spirit that thinks it can do its own thing and play with God's Word. The dustbin of history filled with the nations and their arrogancy. Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction, before a fall. For so many years, England cried, Botranica rules the world. The sun never sets on a British soil. And then they dumped the Bible and God's Word, lost all their possessions, and today they're bankrupt and basically overtaken by the Muslims. Germany cried, Today, Germany, tomorrow the world. She lost 6 million of her prime young men in World War II, lost 10 million in World War I, and now 70 years later, still an occupied country. Greece cries, scholarship, art, culture, philosophy, we're the greatest. And Rome tramples over them and buries them. Greece today has remained a 14th rate power ever since. 
Rome cries, all roads lead to Rome, the eternal city. Look at us. Brother, by 4500 A.D., when the Huns and the Vanguals sacked her and burned her with fire, and today, outside of maybe Shanghai and Cairo, she is the filthiest city in the Eastern Hemisphere. Spain, the greatest sea power in the world, bragged about conquering the world, looked at that little island England and said, we're going to come over with the Spanish Armada and we're going to defeat you and we're going to bring England back under the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1588, July 29th, off they set in an English channel, a typhoon came up and wiped out the whole fleet. And that's why you got the Bible you got today. That's the same God that gave you your tires. The same God that worked in your life. He'll give you tires, he'll give you your family, and he'll sink an enemy in the English Channel. That's some God you got. And it's also true of men and women, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. Pride leads to destruction. It always comes before fall. That'll be October or November. You know, the Bible's, <laughs> the Bible's filled with great examples of this, and I, uh, there's two I just want to close with here. Genesis chapter 27. Probably my favorite chapter in the Bible for me personally. It's about Jacob and God. If you look at my Bible right across the top of the pages in kind of big letters, you'd see this little title, The Day God Gets You Alone. You see, God had a plan for Jacob. Jacob, by the way, means schemer. It means some planner. But God had a plan for Jacob, but Jacob wanted no part of that plan. Jacob was enjoying his life of scheming and getting, doing all the things he was doing. He was having a, living a high life. But God had a job for him, and there was a day that God dealt with Jacob. And it's a day when God got him alone. And God said, Jacob, I got a job for you. And Jacob said, ah, you know what? I'm having a great time. And the Bible says he wrestled with the angel. You go to the book of Hosea, you'll find out that wrestling wasn't a, wasn't a wrestling physical match. It was a wrestling between two wills of what God wanted him to do and what he wanted to do, just like you and I go through. And you know what God did? God reached down and touched the hollow of his thigh, and that muscle shrank, and for the rest of Jacob's life, he limped. You know why he needed to limp? He needed to limp the same way that you and I need to limp sometimes with something that stupid we did in our life that God uses to always as a point of reference, never to go back to it. The old saying is, never trust a man who doesn't limp. Because it always reminded him, the rest of his life, it always reminded him of the day he wanted what he wanted over what God wanted. And yes, he may have limped the rest of his life, but he took the satisfaction of knowing that God loved him enough and cared about him and thought he was valuable enough to touch that thigh so he could do it. And you know what happens in Genesis chapter 27 right after that? God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. There'll be a come a time in your life when you have to choose which way you're going to go. And you're going to wrestle with God over it because, oh, we know, if you think we know better, we got it, we're educated, we got all the answers down. 
right up to the point where he touches your thigh. Jacob was a lot better the rest of his life limping than he was running a 100-yard dash without it. I'll tell you the second one. Second one's over in Judges. Judges chapter 7. The great story of Gideon's 300. The Midianites. God says to Gideon, how many soldiers you got? He says, we got 31,000, Lord. God says, that's too many. And he goes through a process of elimination. And he winds up with 300. You know, God does that same process. This is not, just to throw that. God does that same process in every church. You know that? You get a big church of 1,200, 1,000, 3,000, 4,000 people. You know what the thing you need to do? You need to go on a diet. You need to lose about three quarters of what you got. You need to get down to a fighting weight. He had 31,000 in his church. God said, we can't get anything done with 31,000. He come back and he said, well, I got it down to 19,000. God said, that's still too many. Come back and I got 300. God said, now we'll get something done. So they're going to go take the Midianites on. Pitch black night. Dark. Picture the church age. And he says, okay, guys, we're going to beat the Midianites, and here's what we want to do. Joshua, you get every man to go get a trumpet. You get every man to go get a torch. And you get every man to get a clay pitcher or a pot. Three things they had to have. Now, he had to have a trumpet because they're going to sound the alarm. That's the message that God has given you to preach. They had to have a vessel because that's a picture of your body, earthen vessel of clay. And they had to have a light because the light is the message of God, the light of God shining His countenance in you, and so they put that light in the, in the clay vessel. So now we got a picture of you and me about to do battle. We all got a message. We all got the trumpet. If you're saved today, you got the light inside you. And your body is the clay temple with the light is in. But I want you to notice, when the battle time came and the war was to be fought, he told them, you take that vessel and you break it. And when you break that vessel, the light will come out and then you blow that trumpet. I'm telling you. You got a message, and you got the light of God in you, and it's in your body, your vessel. But it'll never go forth, and you'll never sound the alarm, and the world will never see the light till you get broken. You have to come to the end of self. And then God can use you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father.